this sermon has a text and it's found in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. I um, preached this week in a little town out in western Oklahoma and I, I, um, I, I've, I, re- I counseled all my revivals about three or four years ago and decided that I would not preach any more revivals because I'm not really a revivalist preacher. But I felt led to go out there for some reason or other. Um, I know the preacher there and he's such a wonderful man. He was over at Bennington and had such a great ministry there. And I know that God um, led me out there not because of the revival there in that, among those people because we really um, did not have a revival. But um, in order for God to do some things in my own life. And I was out jogging one morning um, after being there about three days and um, just praying about what God would allow me to do in those services and what was happening in that little church that's absolutely dead and the pastor's so discouraged. I've never seen a deader church. I would describe how dead it was, but there are no words to describe it. And as I was out jogging, I was just, you know, the, the thing that I fear as I was uh, out doing that kind of thing, jogging that morning, praying and thinking about the services, is not that this church would be like that, but that I would become like that. Without any, any yearn, any zeal for God or His Word, without any dependence upon the Holy Spirit or any faith life at all. And God was telling me um, as I was out doing a little walking, a little jogging, that, that probably what we need in the church more than ever before, and especially in my own life, is a re-emphasis on the Holy Spirit. From whence comes our convicting power and our power for service and for life. And so I want to speak to you this morning on a, on a theme that I began when I first came here. And I want to come back and do some of those kinds of things that I did when I first became pastor here. I want to talk to you this morning about the Spirit-filled life. And I'd like for you to read along with me in verse 17 of chapter 5. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We want to do God's will, he said. This is God's will. Don't be foolish, but understand what God's will is for your life. And do not get drunk with wine. It's both negative and positive. It's God's will. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. That's destructive. But be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. McNeil begins his little book, The Spirit-Filled Life, with this statement, quote, On every hand, a lack of something is being felt among the people of God. Their Christianity isn't what they expected. Let me pause to ask you, is yours 
When you became a Christian, is your Christianity what you expected it would be? Is your Christian life what you hoped and anticipated it would be? Or are you disappointed in the Christian life, the Christian walk, in your Christian life? On every hand, a lack of something is being felt among the people of God. The Christian life is not what they expected it to be. Instead of victory, there is reoccurring defeat. Instead of soul satisfaction, there is soul hunger. Instead of abiding heart rest, there is disquiet and discontent. Instead of advancing, many are losing ground. Is this all that God had for me when he said, come unto me, end of quote. To those sad questionings, the divine word answers with an emphatic no. There is a life of praise and power and provision and plenty. There is a life of fullness and fatness which really is to be the norm of the Christian life, which is really to be the rule of the Christian life and not the exception. It's called the Spirit-filled life. Not every Christian is living the Spirit-filled life. This distinction, obvious difference in the daily walk of Christians is recognized and acknowledged in the Scripture. The Apostle Paul says there are some of you, and he's writing Christians, he said there are some of you who are walking worthily of the Lord. He said you have the name and you have the game. Your practice is equal to your profession. There are many of you who are walking worthily of the Lord. Your, your life is worthy of the name Christian. But he said there are many of you who are walking after the manner of men. If it weren't for the label you wore, he said, the world couldn't tell you from the unbeliever. Such is the darkness in your life. Not every Christian is living the Spirit-filled life. But every Christian is commanded to be living the Spirit-filled life. In fact, this text is a Greek imperative and it leaves no room for exception. Every Christian is to live the Spirit-filled life. Every Christian is to be Spirit-filled. Now there's a double negative in the text. He said, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And if it is a sin to be drunk with wine, and I suppose that we all as good Baptists will agree to that. I've heard some rousing sermons from Baptist pulpits on the evils of alcohol. Mm, just really get worked up. But if it is a sin to be drunk with wine, and I'm here to convinced that it is, as the scripture said, it is just as much a sin not to be filled with the Spirit. I want to come back and reemphasize that, say that again. If it is a sin to be drunk with wine, it is just as much a sin not to live the Spirit-filled life. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I don't really see the difference in, in the double negative. So that if you are not, listen carefully, if you are not living a consistent, conscientious, spirit-filled life, you are living in sin. Now I'm not advocating sinless perfection, and I don't want to be misquoted, and so I'm going to say that again. Now this is really a two-sermon sermon, but I'm going to try to get it into one, but I'm not going to rush it because I want you to get what I'm trying to say. 
If you are not living today consistently and conscientiously spirit-filled, you are living in sin. For him to know, him, he who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. And the imperative in the Greek is a dynamic command. Be ye being filled with the Spirit. And if you are not being filled with the Spirit, you are living in sin. And I believe that the distinction and the difference that exists today between some Christians and others, between dead churches and living churches, the difference is in relationship to the blessed Holy Spirit of God. So I want to take this um, text, this theology, this doctrine, and I want to divide it into three sections. I want us to look at the identification of the Spirit-filled life, then the implications, and then the indications. Hang right in there with me. First of all, the identification of the Spirit-filled life. What does it mean, that, that term you've heard often? You've heard it from this pulpit. I preached a sermon in one, of the, in one of the largest churches in Lubbock, Texas on the Spirit-filled life, and I had church leaders, I had deacons come up to me and say, I have never heard that before. He said, where'd you get that? Is that Baptist? He said. He said, I've never heard that from this pulpit. Are you sure you're a Baptist? I said, yeah, I'm sure. I'm a Christian, and I, I try to follow the Scripture first, but yes, that's Baptist doctrine. You know, I was raised in a Christian home, went to a Baptist church from cradle roll up, and I never heard the term, the Spirit-filled life, that it registered on me until I got in a seminary class in 1963. What does it mean to live the Spirit-filled life? What is it? Well, first of all, I need to tell you what it is not. To be filled with the Spirit does not mean that you will speak in tongues. We got this call last week. The only visit we made in Shattuck, Oklahoma for the revival was a visit. A guy called us, wanted us to come visit him. What he wanted to do was to argue about tongues. Now this is his statement. He said, you guys are not preaching from the same Bible I'm preaching from. He said, I challenge, he said, every person in the New Testament who has the Holy Spirit speaks in tongues. Well, we didn't spend a whole lot of time there with that guy because, I mean, no use to argue with that kind of thing. Well, I'm here to tell you that I know a lot of Christians both in the New Testament and out of it who are living the Spirit-filled life who have never spoken in the, quote, unknown tongue. It does not necessarily mean that you'll speak in tongues. Secondly, it does not mean that you'll get more of God. Now you can stop praying those prayers like this. Oh Lord, come into my life. If you've been saved, He's in your life already. I mean, as much as He'll ever be. When you repent of your sin and you turn by faith to Jesus Christ, God comes to indwell you in fullness then. He, you have all of Him you'll ever get. If you came up on this dais, this platform here this morning, you wouldn't send your leg and then your arm and then your neck. You'd just come up on this platform. When God comes to indwell you, you get all of Him you'll ever get. 
Praise the Lord for that. He doesn't dichotomize himself and send portions of himself with regard to our commitment. He comes in fullness to dwell, indwell us. You'll not get more of him, but I'm telling you, he needs to get more of you and me. Doesn't mean that you'll, need, you'll get more of God. It doesn't mean that the infilling of the Holy Spirit is synonymous with salvation all the time. Let me tell you, I was saved when I was a senior in high school. I didn't know there was such a thing as an infilling of the Holy Spirit till I was a freshman in first year seminary. It doesn't mean necessarily that when you get saved you're going to be infilled, you're going to be filled with the Spirit then. As a matter of fact, it might be that later on in life when driven of necessity by a great need, you discover this marvelous experience of the infilling. Now I've used this illustration before, it's the best one I know and I'm going to have to use it again. Ralph Herring said he preached, uh, when he'd preach a, a wedding, that they'd give him an honorarium, he'd give that honorarium to his wife. That was kind of her uh, little gift. And so he was getting ready to do the wedding of, of a wealthy uh, uh, guy and, and girl. Their parents were both wealthy. He thought, boy, we're going to get us a nice honorarium out of this. He told his wife, he said, you may get to take a trip. You know, I was just kind of kidding. And so he did this wedding. And when the, uh, when the father of the groom paid the preacher, he gave him a pair of gloves, leather gloves. Well, that was a disappointment, you know. And so he came home, he said, no, not really. He came home and he, he gave his wife, he said, there's your honorarium, you know, enjoy it. Because he didn't wear gloves. So they just kind of put them in the, in the dresser and forgot about them until one day he was going off to a dollar bill. He put another finger in, pulled out another ten, put another in, pulled out another ten. There were ten, ten dollar bills stuffed in the fingers of those gloves. Now, watch this. He got that honorarium, he got that marvelous gift the night he preached the wedding. But it wasn't until later when driven by some need and urgency that he, learned, he, he, he possessed what he possessed. He discovered what he already had. He began to possess what was really his to begin with. Now look folks, God indwells you. The Holy Spirit is living in your heart if you're a believer. Have you ever really possessed what you possess? Have you ever discovered what is already yours? Have you ever made the marvelous discovery of what you have? Now that's what the, whole, what the infilling is not. Let me tell you what it is. There are several Greek words for fill in the New Testament. One is the word kartadzo, and it's always used with regard to hunger. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. It's the, it's the root, kartadzo. There is a word playtho, and whenever it's used, it's always associated with something being filled from outside. And, and so they handed up that sponge to Jesus, and it was filled with vinegar. It's the root word playtho. And when they pulled in their nets, they were filled with fishes. Then there is a third Greek word, it's the word play role. Now when it's used of prophecy, it means to bring it to pass. When it's used of ministry, it means to complete it. When it is used of God, it means to pervade. It's found in this verse, and it's found in the 19th verse of chapter 3. And it means to pervade, it means to dominate 
and so that a person who is living the Spirit-filled life, that's a life that is pervaded with God and dominated by Him. Controlled is a good word in English for the Spirit-filled life. It means that God controls your life in the person and power of the Holy Spirit. And it's no accident that he uses an illustration of the man drunk with wine as he talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. For a man who is drunk with wine is under the influence, we call it. It's not under, he's not under the influence. He's under the control, the domination of alcohol. And when he's under that control, his whole character personality may change. He may be shy and reticent when he's sober. When he gets drunk, he laughs uproariously and he's the life of the party. When he's sober, he may be tidy and clean. When he's drunk, he may be uh, disheveled and, and untidy. It means that when he's under the control of that, he's under its domination, he's under its influence, and he takes the characteristic of that control and lives it out. Now watch this. When a person is under the control of the Holy Spirit, he's dominated, pervaded by God and God's Spirit, and he lives under the domination and control of the Holy Spirit, and he takes the characteristics and the, and the quality of that which controls him. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Are you still with me? Shake your head up and down like this if you are. I mean, last week I tried everything to see if everybody was you know, still awake. I'm a, so I'm still in the mood. <laughs> now let me look at, with you at the implications of the Spirit-filled life. Now I don't suppose that there are any of these magic formulas for living the Spirit-filled life, but I think I've found what might be representative of those things which are necessary to take place in your life for the Holy Spirit to take control. If you have your New Testament, I want you to turn to John chapter 7. Chapter 7 of John's Gospel. I want to read verses 37 and 38. Well, I'm glad you, I can hear those pages turning. You know, you've got your Bibles and you're interested in this, I hope. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If any man is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit. All right, now, how does one experience, how does he come to, to have for himself the Spirit's infilling, the Spirit's control? I see three things. First, he must thirst for the Lord. Now, it's not a thirsting for gifts. It's not that. It's not a thirsting for the Spirit-filled life even. It's not thirsting for a victorious life, for happiness or for joy. It's thirsting for the Lord. Now, I'm going to have to confess today. You know, part of this, and I'll mention in just a moment, a part of, of getting to the place where the Spirit can control you is confessing up your sins. And I'm going to confess to you. God was just kind of doing a job on me out there on that dirt track. And He said, um, 
I didn't hear his audible voice, but he was speaking to my, to my mind, to my heart. And he said, what do you thirst, what do you thirst for? Well, I thirst for your acceptance, your acceptance. I've thirsted for, you know, great church, you know, and great success. I've even thirsted for the ability to preach good sermons. The Lord said, how much do you thirst for me? Do you thirst for the Lord? The psalmist said, my heart cries out to thee. My flesh yearns for thee in a, day, in, a, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And he said, I stretched out my hands to thee. My soul longs for thee as a parched land. Have you seen dry, parched land? Of course you have. You, look, you can walk out in your yard and see it. And when you see that dry land, out, that dry ground, and, and, the, and it's just kind of cracking, you can just hear it groaning, Oh, give me water. The psalmist said, When you begin to thirst for the Lord, for Jesus, and you long for Him, and you stretch out your hands to Him, and you, like a... Like a like land where there is no water, you long for the Lord. That's the key. Do you thirst for the Lord? Can it be said of you what, it's, what, what Paul said, Oh, that I might know Him. Do you have a thirst for the Lord, for Jesus? Do you long for Him? I don't suppose there is anybody here this morning who just yearns for the Lord, who longs for Him, who's thirsty for Him. I don't suppose there's anybody here like that, is there? And then he said, not only must you thirst for me, he said, let Him come to me. I mean, it's just that simple. I don't have any profound things to say. Just come to me, Jesus said. Now, there are two things that are implied in coming to Jesus. One is that you have to leave where you've been. Now, if I come to where you are, I'm going to have to leave where I am. It involves repentance. Now, the thing that grieves the Holy Spirit is to have unconfessed sin in your life. Do you have sin in your life that's unconfessed? It's grieving the Holy Spirit of God. And you have to leave that. You have to walk away from that. Are there habits in your life that grieve God? Are there attitudes that you cling to and hold to that grieve God? Do you, is it necessary this morning for you to confess sin to God? Do you have sin in your life that's a barrier to the Holy Spirit's control? You're going to have to leave that. And I'm going to have to leave it. And also involved, implied in coming to the Lord is trust. It's the yielded life. Oh, can I say it from out of the deep of my heart? There is no spirit-filled life that's not yielded to God. Yielded life. Like a person going with a blank canvas and saying to the artist, here is a blank canvas. You do what you want to on it. It's like a person who comes to God and says, I yield my life to you. I just give myself to you. Yielded life. There is no spirit-filled life that's not yielded to God. I mean, totally yielded to Him. 
so that you take your hands off of those things that are so important to you that God has put His finger on and said they must go and you yield those things to God. You yield your life to Him. You remember when you were saved? I remember the, the day I was saved. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to me, of course. And I knew some things in my life that I enjoyed doing that God would not let, let me have any longer. But you know, I didn't care. And the day I came to give my heart to Jesus Christ in salvation, I just came totally yielded to Him. I mean, I yielded my sins, I yielded my joys, I yielded my good works, I yielded my future, I just yielded my life to God. Now, the way a person experiences the Spirit-filled life as I understand it is when a person maintains every day the same attitude of yieldedness that he had when he was first saved. Does that sound like anybody you know? Do you have that same attitude of yieldedness that you had when you came to be saved the first time? Are you living in rebellion against God in any area of your life? Then he said, let him drink. That means just appropriate. It means just to take. Paul said, as, many, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in Him. How did you get saved? You just trusted Christ. By faith, you appropriated His provision, His salvation. By faith, you appropriate the control of the Holy Spirit upon your life. Quit begging for God to infill you, and by faith appropriate. Let me come lastly to the best part. I'm conscious that we have 10 minutes to time we get out on time. We're not worried about that, though, are we? I'm not. Some of you may, but uh, hang in here. Ten minutes till twelve. What are the indications of the Spirit-filled life? Let me tell you what the indications of a need of the Spirit-filled life are. I think the first is apathy and indifference. When you find a person who does not care about God... God's work and God's world and God's Word, then that person needs the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Apathy and indifference. And I want you to know that the spirit that pervades most churches is apathy and indifference. I don't care. I just don't care any longer. I don't have any desire. I don't have any want to. Apathy and indifference. The second indication of the need of the Spirit-filled life, I believe, is emotional uh, trauma or spiritual trauma in the Christian life. That is, roller coasters. Uh, the fact that we're on this roller coaster existence, we're up one day and down the next in our spiritual life. We, 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 we're just on fire one moment and we're cold as iceberg the next. Just up and down, there's no consistency. The characteristic uh, nature of many Christians is that they're just up and down, up and down like a yo-yo. There's no consistency in their Christian life. I believe a third indication is failure in the Christian life. Failure in the Christian life. Defeat. And most of the time that failure and that defeat 
occurs at the very same place, I mean, all the time, and, and I, I say, well, I'm going to do better in this area of my life, and I'm defeated, and it's always in that same area. Defeat. Do you know victory in the Christian life? Or are you constantly living a life of defeat? Now, finally, what are the indications of the Spirit-filled life? And this is the fun part. Number one, there will be a new love for God's Word and a burning desire to declare it, to share it. Did you hear what he said? He says, speaking to yourselves, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. These, these folks just went around just, just talking God talk. There's a new appreciation for the Word of God. Joanne Shelton from this church. Dear saintly woman, her mother's watching on television right now, I'm sure. I talked to her a few years ago after Joanne Shelton came to understand after years of Christian living what it meant to live the Spirit-filled life. And I said, Joanne, tell me, what, what, what about it? She said, well, the most, the most exciting thing about living the Spirit-filled life is that the Word of God begins to take on a new meaning. She said, the Word of God began to feed me. And I'd open up the scriptures and, and I'd read those same words, those same verses, but the Word of God began to feed me and comfort me and nurture me and nourish me. She said, I couldn't put it down. And she said, I'd get up in the middle of the night and I'd call my friends and I'd say, guess what, guess what God has shared with me out of His Word? And we'd just share in excitement in the middle of the night God's Word that was feeding her and feeding a friend. It's, it nourishes. Is that the way God's Word is to you? With a burning desire to tell it. Now I know one of the discrepancies of Neo-Pentecostalism is that it tends to turn people in on themselves and they become little groups of cliques. I challenge anybody to show me anywhere in the Scripture where people begin to live the Spirit-filled life or churches experience the Spirit-filled life that those churches didn't explode. And those people got out in the streets and they had a word they could not keep to themselves. You didn't have to beg them to come to visitation. You couldn't keep them off the streets because the Word of God began to come alive. Oh, how I long for that, don't you? Secondly, there is a joy that is not dependent upon outward circumstances. Now, if you'd seen these people, you'd think there's a little weird because all they did is go around singing, you know. I mean, they're singing songs and spiritual songs, making melody in their heart. They're just singing spiritual songs. I mean, when you saw them down the street, they're just whistling, you know, amazing grace. Victory in Jesus, whatever is popular back there, you know. I mean, they're just singing those spiritual songs. Got peace like a river and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they look strange to the world but they had a joy that was not dependent upon our circumstances. And you'll understand that in the context of this, this epistle, these folks were living on the rough edge of martyrdom. They were looking down the red raw throat of death and they had every reason to despair and to give up, but they were rejoicing. 
and they were singing. And when you found them, they had a melody that was just erupting like a fountain out of their heart. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was in control. Third characteristic or indication. They had a new kind of fellowship. He said they were subject to one another. You talk about strange. When that church met together, they didn't look, they, they weren't there to be ministered unto, they were there to minister. And one of them said, you need some money here, take mine. One said, you need some clothes here, take my coat, took off his coat. Somebody said, you need something to eat? I don't have it, just a crust of bread, it's all I got to my name, but here, you take it. One person said, here, I want to be the Sunday school director of apartment four. The other guy said, well, I'm director of apartment four, but here, take it if that's what you want. I mean, there was a new kind of fellowship. You won't find church splits where you find a church filled with the Holy Spirit. You won't find people at odds with each other who are living the Spirit-filled life because all they want is to minister and they have the mind of Jesus. One last thing. They had victory and power. Their life was a blessing to others. He said, out of your belly, out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And wherever the water touched, Ezekiel told us about it in his prophecy, wherever the water flowed, there was fertility and life. I want to share this with you and then I'm through. I'm, I'm finished. Stephen Olford got on a plane in New York City and was going to Houston to speak an engagement. He said there was on this plane a young stewardess named Kathy. He said, Kathy was just so vivacious and dynamic. And she's just going up and down the aisles of that plane, you know, just full of the Lord, just greeting everybody and being so kind. And she said, aren't you Stephen Alford? He said, yes, I am. He, she said, I heard you preach last night. I was in your church. I had a layover here in New York City. I heard you preach. I just praise the Lord for your ministry. And he said, boy, they just sat down and worshiped and praised the Lord together. He said, I was sitting up in the front part of the, of the plane and I was doing some study and getting ready for the conference in Houston. And he said, uh, in a little bit, Kathy tapped me on the shoulder and said, could you come back here at the back of the plane? He said, I got a Bible conference going on back here. And said, there's three or three guys back here that don't believe in God, believe in Scripture. He said, won't you come back and share with them? So he said, I went back to the back of the plane and they just kind of gathered around, just a bunch of guys. And Kathy was sharing her witness, sharing the Scripture. And he said, I began to talk to him. He said, there's one guy, a wealthy Jew from New York City, who's headed down south to a big business meeting in Houston. And she was giving him the word about the Lord. And he said, I'd like to tell you that that man was saved on that plane, but he wasn't. But he said, as he started to leave, he, he said to Kathy, he said, Kathy, um, could I have your name and phone number? He said, I hope you don't consider me presumptuous or forward or rude, but, but I'd like to talk further with you about what you're, what you're talking about. Kathy lived in Houston. Kathy shared with Stephen Alford by letter later that during the middle of the week, the telephone rang in her apartment, and this Jewish man who had listening to her in the back of that plane said, Kathy, I haven't been able to sleep since I talked to you on that plane. I've got to know how 
to be saved. The person who lives the Spirit-filled life will touch somebody's life around him. And there will be fertility and life. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you've brought us together today to emphasize again what's been emphasized before. That's the Spirit-filled life. And I pray that if there are those here today who are living defeated, fruitless, empty Christian lives, that there would begin in them a hunger and a thirst for Jesus, for the Lord. There's a result of that hunger and thirst for Him to find what it means to live under the Spirit's control. Bless these moments of invitation, I pray thee in Jesus' name. Now there are three invitations. Would you look here quickly? The first is for you to come and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit is for you to come and take Him, the Holy Spirit, into your life. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the other Jesus, to come and indwell you, to take His place in your life, in the place that He's created to, to indwell, to forgive your sin, to make you a new person. When He comes in, you are transformed and made brand new. Have you ever invited Jesus Christ to be your Savior, turning from sin to Jesus? doesn't matter if you're a member of the church. Have you ever invited Christ to be your Savior? If you trusted Jesus only. The second invitation is for Christian people. You know what I'm talking about this morning. That yearning in your heart for something more than defeat and failure. And you yearn for the Lord. And you might come to say, I don't understand what it's all about, but I want the infilling of the Holy Spirit. I want to be under His control. Help me to begin the process, step of confession of sin and turning, yielding. I want to live the Spirit-filled life. Today's a good day for college students. You see, you have to be obedient to the Lord in every area. Maybe God has brought you to Durant and put you in this church, this community, because He knew these folks will love you. So come this morning and place your life here on promise of letter or by statement. or Maybe we could accept you as a, uh, on watch care. Maybe you don't want to join the church, but you want to be a vital part of this and ask Lee how that happens. Come and join our church. These folks are here to love you and to help you grow. You can't grow in isolation or insulation where you are. Let God, let God lead you here today. Oh, I just sense that God wants to do something great in our midst today. Let Him begin with you while we stand to sing. You come.